The materiality of objects and places, but in general our understanding of the materials all around us, play an important role in our ability to make sense of the world. With digital tools, technologies and digital worlds opening up for us to explore and navigate, it is important we understand both the very real physical impact our digital tools and personas take to be created and we continue to interrogate the importance of our physical presence in relation to our virtual one. To ponder these topics and more, I've invited a contemporary jeweler, researcher, thinker, who with her work has a very insightful and considerate approach to materials. Dr. Patricia Dominguez has been exploring fracturing movements in both artificial and natural materials, and is intrigued by the tension between intentional acts and uncontrolled accidents such as fractures. As Linking Bodies Research Fellow at the Gerrit Rietveld Academy, she is exploring the way technology lives through activism dependent on mineral and geological sources. To discuss her work and to ponder these exciting yet challenging topics with me, I'm excited to welcome Patricia. Thank you so much, Sophie, to think about uh, me. So the first question is, Patricia, please, could you share a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do? Yes, yeah, so I am originally from uh, Portugal. Um, when, when I was 15 years old, I actually um, I had to ch the chance to join an artistic uh, school for high school. Back then, I knew that I definitely wanted to, you know, follow an artistic uh, path, but I wasn't sure exactly what. So I um, I chose this um, artistic school because uh, it, it had all the different courses. And what happened is that I went there the first day and I had to choose the course that I was going to follow and they invited us to see different videos. And back then, I actually, my mom, she was with me and she told me I could choose everything what I wanted except jewelry. But then there was this incredible image that I remember vividly till today, which I think every jewelry maker can relate to that, is this image of different pieces of silver melting into each other and forming this perfect sphere. So when I saw that, I definitely decided that I, it's not that I decided, I just felt that I needed to work with that. And, and I just said it to my mom, I'm very sorry, but I think I, I need to choose jewelry. Um, and she was very comprehensible and she sort of accepted. <laughs> she was okay with it. Um, so this was actually the beginning of everything. So nowadays I am actually a jewelry artist, but also a researcher. So I have my studio in Germany where I work with different kinds of materials. Um, and yeah, so I work as an independent artist, but also as a researcher. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder whether not being allowed to do something has an impact on choosing something as well. I don't think that I made that decision to go against my mom, <laughs> I swear, I, because I have thought about it many times, is if I have made that decision because of that. But my mom, she was never the type of mom that she would not allow me to do certain things. On the contrary, uh, she would actually allow me to do things that often, you know, classic moms and dads don't allow their children. So I don't think it was that. It, it was really that image. You know, it was really the fact, and I think it really relates to my work, it was the fact that different fragments all of a sudden were bound to each other. So I think it was really that gesture that I knew it, that I wanted to, to belong to that. And to be honest, if you think about it, even the academic and the research world, it's also about that. It is about community. It's about different voices coming together um, in the creation of, yeah, multiple points of view, you know, that uh, enrich each other. So, yeah, I think that was, and jewelry certain is a powerful mean to, to achieve that, that connection between materials and persons, uh, with landscapes, but also with different human beings. So yeah, I think it was an honest coming from the art <laughs> decision. Yeah, for sure. I say that because I thought 
of my own. My my dad had a catering shop, so I was never allowed to wear any jewelry. Oh, really? That makes sense. Yeah. And the one subject I studied was jewelry. Oh, it's funny. I was always wearing my mom's jewelry. In fact, I had the most fun with, but I think it is that way with many jewelry artists, uh, you know, that the jewelry box from their moms becomes like an important object in their lives. And with me, the same happened. You know, I had so much fun opening the box, removing all the jewelry that was inside, wearing in different ways. And then the funny thing is that, and I also think this relates to my practice, is that I would put all the jewelry back, but it would always look different. And I remember that I couldn't, I even wrote about that in my PhD. I could never close the box entirely. You know, there was always like a division there that would sort of uh, denounce that I that I had been there. But somehow this, this ritual, it's also extremely important, you know, like it seems that nothing had happened yet. You have had, you have wear those jewelry, you have look at yourself and you have changed. So I really enjoyed this symbolic and almost ritualistic aspect um, of jewelry. We kind of discussed that you became a goldsmith at a very young age and what attracted you to the subject. Was there anything about the techniques that was really interesting to you? I'm going to be honest with you. So I was uh, 15 years old and I was very impatient and emotional. So in fact, the techniques in the beginning was a very difficult subject for me meaning that I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> you know, I often would just get uh, mad uh, at things, you know, so I would just leave the studio. Yeah, you know, I would just melt the silver or, you know, it really took me many years to understand that if you want to have certain skills or if you want to make something in a certain way, the thing you need the most is actually patient and love for that thing otherwise the thing is not going to react in the way that you want so it was a struggle and in all the senses I actually in the beginning I wasn't so sure I wanted to become a jewelry artist in the beginning uh, especially in high school I knew that I wasn't fascinated by this aspect that jewelry brings along which is you know like you know this desire for expensive materials for shiny stuff I always thought I mean back then this act for me it seemed a little bit superficial and I I knew back then that I didn't want to um, deal with that but I think at the same time I also came to realize that it's not jewelry that it's superficial but people can make jewelry superficial uh so from the moment that i discovered that then i was engaged engaged with jewelry uh, and i went on yeah and your materials library expanded when you decided to pursue a master's when you started to work with stone how did this change your creative process how did your creative process perhaps develop yeah immensely I mean it changed immensely my perception because it's very interesting because when I arrived in Germany so in Eden Oberstein this was the first time that I was touching a raw material also I was in a landscape that it also contained a certain amount of that material I mean it's not Eden Oberstein in our days you cannot find a lot of gemstones but it is a place of extraction also. And it is also a place where there is this um, gemstone shops all over. And so industry where you can actually buy the raw material. And I think this um, sort of changed my perception or perhaps more than change, it educated me in the sense that I could see the point of origin and how it gets affected by human action. You know, and this is something that I did not have in Lisbon while I was studying uh, jewelry, you know, because I would go and buy metal to a shop and it was normally in perfect shape, you know, wire or sheets of, of metal. And you don't really fully understand, like, 
what was the origin of that material, you know, like, which is, I mean, it's like also going to the supermarket and, you know, buying meat or fish, you know, we don't really understand what is it that you're looking at. And it seems most of the time something like alienated. And in the Dora Bastein, this change. So I think the fact that I have been growing as an artist and as a person here, it really contributes immensely for uh, for my artistic language, I would say. And of course, when I arrived here and I had the chance to work with gemstones for the first time, something inside of me changed um, because, you know, like a gemstone, it, it, it tends to be sometimes ugly on the outside, you know, like it looks brown, dirty. And from the very moment that you make a cut through the gemstone and you look inside, then there is this world that is revealed that it's just so beautiful. It's it's magnificent. And, you know, it contains all these lines and colors and features and fractures that they look pretty much alive. So here it's something happened. Like I felt I was, of course, encouraged to work with this material, but at the same time, I felt that I did not want to interfere with this image that I was looking inside because, in a way, it just seems so complete and so beautiful already. Like, I, I, I think I didn't have anything to add to it. So for me, it was very difficult to deal with this reality. And at the same time, I got to know this uh, material called, called reconstructed stone, you know, which is an artificial, well, it's an industrial material made out of stone powder uh, combined uh, with resin. And the thing is, the fact that it's uh, industrially made, it means that it, it doesn't contain any special features inside. It means that it doesn't matter where you cut, the result inside is it's always the same. So I think back then, this quality, I felt attracted to it because it was the opposite of a gemstone, you know, like a gemstone, each is a, a different element in nature. And to work with the gemstones in a way, it means to start always from the zero because, you know, there is always different lines, different fractures, uh, different fragilities in the, in the material. And that wasn't happening really with the reconstructed um, stone. But I think what happened back then is eventually, you know, because there was a certain pressure to work with the material, eventually I did end up doing some experiments with gemstones. And the thing about, with gemstones is that when you are working with them, when you're engraving them, I mean, they will eventually break while you are working with it. And then I think I start looking at this instead of, like a mistake for me, it was more like a quality and a, a challenge to look at the material from a different perspective. And there was this relationship with the artificial stone. And I think what happened is that all of a sudden I was studying my own methods to generate my own fractures in the reconstructed stone. So yeah, I think this is also from where my fascination between the cut and the fracture come from. In the sense that, you know, like a cut in the material is sort of like a premeditated decision. It is a controlled action. And the fracture, although I I was intent or I am intentionally provoking a fracture in the material, I can never entirely control the outcome because it always depends, you know, on the material, on the string, on the tool. And I think this was also like um a turning point in my artistic work in the sense that I started to look at skills as a way to generate empathy towards the material to, you know, that skills can go beyond our own human features. You know, it, it started to be, you know, like, because craft tends to be understood as a, a means of control uh, over the material and techniques. And for me, it was more than that. It is like craft become then like a medium capable of, you know, generating empathy and care towards materials and landscapes. Yeah. And it, it, it so it is more about the thing that, it, that you can control. It is a way to connect to forces that are actually beyond, beyond our, your own um, yeah, skills. 
it feels like when you were trained as a goldsmith, you were taught how to control materials. And then when you started working in stone, you were forced to let go. I see a lot of communication between material and that control and, and, and finding a balance between that isn't overbearing on the material, but actually letting the material speak in your work. That, that, that communication is so present. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the, the gesture of fracturing eventually also, it, it called upon a second gesture, which is to look inside. And I think this gesture of looking inside eventually, it also became like a sort of metaphor or even methodology to actually understand, uh, you know, like the different ways that we actually fracture and fragment the landscape and how, you know, in order for our constructed world to exist, that it means there is a mountain that it's going to uh, disappear you know, that it's going to be transformed into fragments and dust and so on. Yeah. And to live with that sort of realization to decide here, yes, and there, no. It's very tricky. Yeah. You have written in the past that you have this keen interest in the idea of recreating an image of a landscape through this process of fragmentation. Could you tell me a little bit more about how you connect perhaps the viewer recreating that image? Well, I think this sentence has double meaning in my work. In the sense, well, in one side, I am using reconstructed stone, which means per se the material, it is already a recreated image of a landscape, you know, because it that means that that has already been a landscape that has been transformed into dust and then recreated into this industrial material. And so my I think my work is also that, like it's sort of like um, a tautological gesture, you know, a gesture that it repeats in itself, that I'm literally fragmenting a reconstructed material that it has already been fragmented and reconstructed. Um, so I think this is what I mean, but I think the process of reconstruction or like the idea of recreating an image uh, of the landscape is an extremely powerful in the sense that in this recreation, we sort of can pay attention, you know, like to all these phenomena that often happen and we are not even aware, you know, how the our physical materiality is actually based upon a deconstructed uh, immateriality. And we don't acknowledge that. We don't acknowledge the immateriality, you know, the absence that stays. And perhaps we should acknowledge that. I, I always ask when there is an, a, an opportunity to ask how jewelry could contribute to the debates around the post-human. And I think that's very much present in both this sentence and your practice. And do you have any thoughts on sort of how you think jewelers can contribute to this type of debate? Well, you know, like I think the post-human, for me, the way that I understand it is, it goes against this transhumanist ideal, you know, that actually glorifies human and nothing else. So the post-human is actually an entrance to acknowledge our fragility in the in the world, and it acknowledges the fact that you know we are human actually only in contrast or in resonance with what is not human i think this is actually a quote uh from david uh, abraham and it's, it's it's not like this it's similar but you know it acknowledged the fact that we are so dependent on the living world and that's that's actually what it makes us humans so i think jewelry it's actually such a powerful mean to acknowledge this vulnerable side, you know, the fact that we are in continuously communication and dependent on so many other species. And I think jewelry precisely because it's an object of intimacy, it, it really, it, it can bring certain message to where no other discipline can bring, you know, it can bring to your, to your skin, to your body. And it, I think this is such a powerful way yeah, to learn something and to 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 relate 
to relate to materials and landscapes that are often, you know, they are silent identities, you know, but so I think it's also our human mission to sort of enlighten these these realities with with care and, and detail. And I think this is actually what jewelry is capable of doing. You know, it's 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 a portal, it can contain so many realities inside. And then a sort of activism role on a personal level perhaps it's so important the, the personal activism you know we we often don't think about it but small actions do matter i think yeah in your work you you mentioned you use both these natural and these man-made materials what are your reflections on these two main material classes when do you decide to work with something natural? We've kind of touched upon it already, but if you make work now, is there a decision beforehand that's perhaps conceptual or do you feel your way through that decision? And Sophie, I think from all the questions, this one was, um, because it looks like a simple question, but it's not. <laughs> it contains... Uh, uh, a lot, and I was struck with this, this this idea. When do I decide to work either with a natural material or a man-made? And you know, like when I look at my studio, it's actually sort of like a chaotic. It's not really chaotic. It's a bit chaotic in the sense, you know, there are all sort of materials. I don't divide them. You know, they are just there, lying around. I need to look at them every day. You know, like. I don't know, I, I have love for them. They inform me uh, as an artist. So from, actually, I think for me, what I'm interested, it's perhaps not so much about what distance exists in between these two worlds, but perhaps actually what brings them together. And I think there is this tendency to create a separation between both. And I think this is, really the effect of us humans looking at us separated from nature, you know, but if this separation doesn't exist, then I mean, they are materials, which often tend to mimic actually uh, natural materials, you know, a reconstructed material is nothing more than a sedimented landscape. So I think if anything with, in my studio, I tend to sort of dismiss this separation, this, this this division between between materials, and rather look for yeah, symbiosis in materials or, you know, I, I, I because you know the, the way that the landscape is formed, I think in a craft schools we are also, you know, there is this tendency to think about different disciplines. You know, there is wood, there is metal, there is stones. You know, and they come to you as these separated disciplines. But in in the landscape, they are actually together. You know, like we could say a landscape, it's almost like an orgy of elements. You know, and it's metal, it's stone, it's it's wood, it is rock, it's tree, it's water, and 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 they are all together, continuously forming the landscape. So I think this is a little bit what I look uh, in my work. And I think this has become more, perhaps more explicit in my last uh, exhibitions where I don't create any more such a division between uh, human made and naturally made. Yeah, they are just uh, materials. But of course, you know, this does not mean that we don't have to acknowledge that some man-made materials materials made by humans are indeed threatening to the natural environment. Um, you know, but it, perhaps if we would look at ourselves more from actually being nature and not something separated, then I think we will indeed look more deeply to our, you know, to the to the consequences of making one material over the other. Extracting as well has consequences too. So if you look at both practices from a impact, yeah, rather than the division, yeah, it's an interesting approach. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And do you feel your work gets interpreted differently? A hundred percent. Yeah, for sure, because it is a way more complex uh, landscape. 
when I work with artificial or reconstructed materials, I tend to work these materials, you know, they, they look organic while I, when I work with them, right? So they sort of recover their natural aspect. And in fact, so often actually people, they can really fully understand that what they are looking at, it's not natural. I mean, people often think my pieces look like minerals found in a landscape. And it's only after that to explain, no, no, there's so much work in it. <laughs> but yeah, so perhaps, I guess, when I work in installations, you know, that uh, combine natural and artificial materials, there is this sort of filter among all the work that sometimes can even make it difficult to, to distinguish. Yeah. You decided to pursue a doctorate to deepen... I would say your material and form investigations of which you have been exhibiting the results. What was your research question or what were your research questions? And could you perhaps share a little bit more about this decision to pursue a, a PhD? I don't, I don't think it was like a very premeditated decision. It was, you know, it's life. The opportunity came and I was a young maker and I just took the chance and I think that was the right decision perfect but about the research question that was something that I that I struggled with it in the beginning in the sense that I felt that this more classic way of working it didn't really match my way of working you know because actually you know, I, I have the feeling that, you know, as a maker, like the body knows even before you know it, you know, from a theoretical perspective. So before I know, you know, fractures and lines and borders were appearing in my work before I could even talk about them. So I felt like, why should I um, behave any different, you know? So this was a, a very difficult period, but I, I think I end up coming across uh, something that uh, really changed uh, or helped me to do research in the way that I felt comfortable with it. There was this sentence from, it's not a sentence, it's actually more like an idea from Tim in Gold in his publication that's called um, Lines, A Brief History. It talks about lines of transportation or lines that go for a walk and what he says is that you know like the lines of transportation you know are the lines that go from a to b that often are the lines that transport the goods you know there are the lines that have uh you know like a beginning and they know exactly where they will end up and the lines that go for a walk are then the lines that um you know that continuously digress you know but are the lines that end up knowing the landscape in a more deepened way. And the thing about this is that, you know, like he calls it the anthropology of the line. It is so important because, you know, the way the lines that we, the way we move in the landscape uh, and the way we treat uh, the materials, they actually, you know, these lines end up being sort of like metabolized in our ways of thinking. And this sort of like gave me a certain methodology to, you know, like I start to fragment my texts, you know, like I depart from the idea, you know, I sort of found this methodology to start writing from my surroundings, from this very phenomenological experience of my surroundings, you know, like from the landscapes that I was looking around, from the gemstone shops uh, in Niederoberstein, but also analyzing my story and my relationship with Portugal and, you know, with the colonial past from Portugal. So it, it sort of like gave me, you know, like this idea of the lines that go for a walk and the lines of transportation. It gave me like a sort of background to refer to the lines of extraction, to the colonial lines, to the lines of imposition over the non-human world of minerals. And the lines that go for a walk, then it become like a sort of freedom to pretty much do what I do in my work, which is combining different materials to fragment texts, to bring them apart or to bring them together. Yeah, to sort of all of a sudden there is this, this pattern that it's, it, that it's very complex. So 
I really like this idea of research, you know, that it's rather a way of living. It is like a movement, but it's not per se like a question or a dot where to start. It is, yeah, it is a way of, of, of being. So in that sense, there was never like a question and there was not this extractive need to answer something, to come up with a solution. But it, there was this, you know, there is a practice, there is a movement of life that pretty much works as a sort of like a catalyzer or, you know, or a gateway to sort of develop a speculative exercise of, you know, how to how can we create different relationships with the landscape and with the materials that, that we extract from it. So yeah, in the end, my PhD turned out to be more like a complex map of, uh, you know, like different texts, different landscapes that I have seen. Yeah, and eventually, you know, try to understand how, you know, like colonial positions or more objective sides about the landscape can eventually also relate to more animistic understandings of the landscape. So I think this is what I've tried to do in my PhD was... Um, sort of look for a rhizomatic understanding of all these perspectives uh, of the landscape in the way that it, there is not one singular true, but simply there are different uh, yeah, understandings of it, different ways of being. In a way, you were deconstructing what it means to research in the arts and then reconstructing the practice of research back to suit your own for me, it was important to do, it's pretty much what I do with my work, you know, this idea of anti-design, you know, that, that I, I don't design my pieces, but simply I create a sort of stage for the material to perform. This, it was also important for me, you know, that, it, that I anti-design my own research, that it's like an organic creature, but in the end contains several paths to look and understand uh, the landscape. Yeah. This is not an easy task, I'm sure. No, uh, <laughs> but I had great pleasure doing it. Yeah, for sure. Some people that read, uh, especially the first chapter of my PhD, they were annoyed by it in the sense, you know, that I write something and then I interrupt. There is clear cut in it. Yeah, so I mean, I have, of course, in the introduction, I have tried to prepare the reader for those uh, kinds of movements. But it's so liberating to write in this way, you know, to write through fragments. For me, it really worked that way. Working with fragments, yeah, it, it allowed me to create a, a more complex map, which something that I, I, I could never do it if I would have done uh, from a linear uh, perspective, simply because I can't, you know, like it, it is not the way that I think. Most recently, you have been working as a researcher at the Rietveld Academy. What have you been working on there? So um, the study is actually, the research is a collaboration between materiality, materials and artificial intelligence. So it's two different research fields. And the idea was to actually take a bit of a critical perspective um, on AI to understand that there is people often tend to think of digital and AI as something um, immaterial. You know, even the name of iCloud immediately gives this uh, impression, but it is quite the contrary. It is actually depending on mineral resources, um, you know, like what it takes eons of times, you know, what it takes a geological time to be made by earth. It is actually can be spent in a, you know, in on a click, so on a digital instant. So the research has this um, idea that, you know, to use jewelry and small scale objects and installation to actually call upon the materiality of the digital and AI studies. Um, so the goal is actually to clearly identify precisely what materials are being mined and what materials um, actually AI depends on it. So the idea is to, you know, to bring this unknown world into an artistic discourse and, yeah, allow the audience to sort of create a relationship with the materials that so often are just hidden from us that, yeah, you know, like, you know, a computer looks like a very close box, a magical box, but it's being made of materials. 
Uh, I think there is this amazing quote that I can't remember the name of the author, but it, it's the idea is like how our smartphones contain 75% of the periodic table. So it's it's pretty much about the earth. And yeah, this idea of the the iCloud, it, it, it's, it, it really does not make justice to what's happening. You know, in fact, it should be called more like the iMountain um, to really give the idea that, yeah, our modern society pretty much depends uh, on the mineral world and this is only expanding. Yeah, there is this um, author that I definitely consider one of the most important uh, authors to read nowadays from Jessica Parika, A Geology of Media. And I mean, he explains how actually colonialism was sort of like the gateway for the way we treat mineral, the mineral world today. This, what happened in colonialism, you know, like this idea that matter, it's sort of disattached from life. And therefore it's, it's, it's up to us to classify matter between extractable and non-extractable and just use as we want. Yeah, and this, of course, it has even gained deeper consequences in nowadays uh, with, you know, AI. It's actually, or in nowadays, it's, you know, the the, the impact on the environment, it's actually bigger uh, than the plane industry, for example. So, yeah, these AI studies, they, they come with uh, huge cost for the Earth. Today, we already used all the sources that we should have used this year. So this means tomorrow we are in debt, but it has been happening already in the last years. And AI um, is certainly contributing to uh, this phenomenon. Yeah. It's very interesting as well, this idea of connecting it to the colonialism, because of course it's also taking what we think is ours. Yeah. This idea of ownership over the over the entire planet and you know actually one of my um neighbors he actually is not living here anymore but he's a agriculture and one day he told me patricia this is so simple everything what you take from the earth you have to give it back and i think mining uh, industries i don't think that they have ever even thought about that it's really just about taking, 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 and yeah, and it has there's a it has a cost. So one part it is uh, in the uh, so practical work, you know, working done in the studio, working with different materials like yeah, silicon, lithium, copper, aluminium. So all materials that are sort of like essential. Um, to sustain digital structures, databases, you know, and AI um, studies. And so part of this research is also to learn about the different landscapes that are being uh, mined, for instance. Um, I'm actually working a lot with the north of Portugal because the north of Portugal, it seems like it's one of the biggest uh, resources for lithium and it's about to be mined. So I have, and I have never done this till today I have, work with landscapes that have already been mined. And this is the first time that I'm actually working with a landscape that it hasn't yet been mined, but it's about to be. Um, so I'm just like, you know, like writing and photograph that landscape um, in order to sort of, to create a record of what it was. Uh, and yeah, it will stop being that. But I'm also writing an article, a speculative exercise. I realized that nowadays there is already there is already mining companies that are using uh, AI to mine with more precision, meaning creating making several uh, pictures of a certain landscape and knowing what elements there are in this in a particular landscape. AI sort of can predict where there is. An, an or what that might be uh, inside. So I, I am in this moment that I, you know, like if we look at it from a new materialism perspective, we can also think about our human body as an uh, assemblage of bacteria, you know, that, you know, like we eat and the bacteria digest. So we can continuously ask who is eating. It is us as human beings or 
or then we have to change the definition of what being human means. Is it us or are we a collective of uh, different species? Um, so what makes an a living organism a living organism? Could we ask ourselves uh, if it's the search for food? And in that sense, could we say that AI, it is already search for his own food? Could you, we already consider AI as like a digesting system? So it, it, it's it's a little bit about uh, that. And of course, you know, because the idea of AI having awareness, it can be looked from so many, from so many different perspectives. And perhaps we could also ask ourselves what it means consciousness and what is it located? So from that perspective, could we say we are the bacteria that helps AI to digest? Or are we, you know, the, the, the spark of light that we send from our brain to our arm that take us to induce a movement? Are we that? For AI, that's a difficult question. <laughs> yeah, but it, it it also like it takes us to look to a less uh, decentralized human perspective. Like what what if we are not the main protagonists in it? Uh, what if we ourselves are a sort of bacteria? Uh, yeah. What drew you to think about these subjects? Where has that interest come from? So it started with a project that I developed in collaboration with um, Studio VI, which is like a group of graphic designers uh, based in Lisbon. So the project is called Modern Animism. And this was a project that we developed for the Design Museum um, of Ghent. This was an exhibition about colors and pigments because, you know, it was an exhibition to celebrate uh, the work of the master uh, Chan Van Eck. So I actually, I based this work in the painting of the mystic lamp, but in the central part where you could see Christ, Maria and, and Jean Baptiste. So Maria clothes were painted with lapis lazuli, uh, Christ uh, with red cornelian and Jean Baptiste with uh, malachite. So what I did was I worked with a company to work on these quite big blocks of reconstructed um, malachite, a lapis lazuli and red cornelian. And the idea was that while there was these physical bodies being deconstructed, there was a digital um, fragmentation. So we, we create this website. So we, we were inviting the audience to choose a fragment so because these blocks were being fragmented into small pieces. So everyone was invited to choose their favorite stone. And in exchange, we're asking the audience to take a picture of this stone. And there was this app that then was collecting this picture and sort of like uploading to, to the website. So here, there was a very interesting moment because initially we the website you know, we had a collaboration of an algorithm designer and he sort of craft the algorithm himself. But the thing is that like we noticed the algorithm wasn't working as we wanted. Um, so we were what we were doing with this algorithm is that you know people were taking a photo and the app was sort of like cutting out the stone from the background, right? So it, it would appear in this black background, almost like if it was like an almost a spiritual uh, gesture, you know. But the thing is that we really wanted the audience to use their own smartphones. So because, you know, it's also an object of intimacy. It's, it's yeah, our own device. So this algorithm, in a way, it was not strong enough to handle you know, like all these different smartphones around, you know, because each one has like a different setting, you know, a different way of processing images, light, shadows, and so on. So the website was actually in the beginning uh, full of mistakes. You know, we, it, it really was not um, working properly, let's say. And something happened, actually, this was actually in the pandemic, actually, the exhibition was open and Belgium and the rest of Europe went into lockdown. 
and what happened is that I mean I think you know like when there was the lockdown all of a sudden everyone starting using Zoom and and the thing of Zoom is that they invested millions creating this AI algorithm that precisely would you know like do the cutout of yeah to to cut the profile from the people uh, from the background and we were so lucky because just like some days even before the exhibition uh, opened again, this algorithm was actually shared. Because this is a very interesting thing in the te technological world is that if there is an advance, the, they will immediately uh, share this to the rest of the audience. So what we did is that we actually implement, we used that algorithm that was, you know, that was trained by Zoom and we sort of update this to our own website and we obtain amazing results. Of course, it's just perfect uh, in nowadays. Yeah, and this this was my first contact uh, with AI. This idea that a self-crafted algorithm couldn't handle what we want, but an AI-trained algorithm um, could. So this idea of optimization of crafted versus uh, AI. Um, yeah, this was my first contact. And of course, back then I was pretty much already interested in this immediately relationship between <clears throat> the landscapes that are fragmented in order uh, for others um, to exist. And of course, I mean, I've also, I know I'm actually a um, colleague with Annalyn Sweden and yeah, we've also been working on it for quite uh, some time together. So yeah, we both share yeah this interest on the artificial. This is kind of an amazing example of where artificial intelligence can help creatives. Do you have any other sort of thoughts on these artificial intelligence tools and how you see them being a benefit to creatives? What I am actually most fascinated about, um, even it's it's actually not so much about what it can do but for me it's more about um, the fact that AI generates so much space to discuss our subjects you know like in the sense that you know AI imitates humans capacity of, of, of thinking you know and this immediately puts a spotlight on what is actually intelligence you know and this argument that AI is more intelligent than us but then what actually what it is intelligence and then I think all of a sudden we are so much more aware that actually intelligence it's all around uh, and it comes with different perspectives and it's not so much about this idea of you know that it's located in the brain but that it perhaps it's also uh, you know sensorial emotional all these things that actually AI pretty much can't do at the moment um, so it's not that I am like against AI. I think AI, indeed, it is a it is a fascinating technology. You know that it can it can read patterns that we can. I'm all up to investigations. You know that use technology actually more like as an awareness to the living world. You know that help us to read the living world with more sensibility and more care. Um, yeah, rather than the negative aspect of AI that it's, you know, colonial, bias, um, danger, threatening, uh, yeah, and so on and so on, yeah. But then, yeah, there are, of course, these real dangers and things that we do need to discuss. I also am very interested in sort of the debate it causes on authenticity and originality, which is, of course, in our creative industry of, of importance, What's your thoughts on those types of subjects then? And you know, I mean, we we could also um, speculate about it. You know, like we could say, for instance, because some people say that AI is going to actually uh, release human beings from every rep repetitive work. Uh, you know that we will finally have time. I don't know to think uh, <laughs> about whatever. <laughs> But then imagine if this happens, you know, like all of a sudden we can actually make hobbies. Uh, I don't know, imagine that half half of the world actually all of a sudden starts making jewelry. I like to think that there is this tendency for us. Um, I really like this sentence that it says, humans did not invent technology, 
rather the other way around. This means that, I mean, inherently, we are technological beings. We are not just biological beings or social beings. We are technological beings. Technology, rudimentary from very complex technology, it is our way to, it is our interface with the material world. This is how we, we get to know uh, things. So I think there is also this urgent need, and this is actually part of my fellowship uh, research at the Hitwell, to there is this urgent need to generate a discipline that actually help us to understand what is technology, that it that, that take us to talk about it. You know, like um, there is this incredible book also from James Bridal, Ways of Being, that it is saying pretty much that we shouldn't be afraid, you know, we should we should try to understand what's happening, you know. Not not just accepting uh, as like a mysterious force. It's not. It is made by humans for humans. You know. So we should tackle it on 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 the topic. And I certainly think there is this disciplines like jewelry and craft, which are you know disciplines of of process of looking inside things, understanding how things are made. I think there is great potential actually combining both disciplines. You know that that really allowed students to dismantle technologies, to talk about technologies, to question, to use or not use. Yeah, so I think from my perspective, I, I think it's better to embrace it. And I actually think it's better to generate the necessary space to talk about it and to study rather to deny it. I, I, I don't think that's uh, the way, especially because I truly believe that it's who we are. And if if it's such such an important part of our lives, then we should definitely um, embrace it. There is an acceleration with artificial intelligence, you know, with with taking over skills and what your practice does is an a de acceleration again to sort of pause a fragment of the moment and and evaluate it. Yeah, yeah. The I did a collaboration project with Sandra. Golovait and Marin Bolding. You know, Sandra, she she's a visual a video artist, but she actually works a lot uh, with algorithms. And Sandra, she has, I, I like her, her work a lot because she has a craft understanding of technology, meaning that she actually likes old technology and she likes to understand, for instance, you know, nowadays when we handle the computer, it's everything by touch. But if you write certain code sentence, you can actually achieve the same result. So is this like uh, archaic language that computers uh, possess? So we did a workshop together and we end up learning how to solder electronic systems. Yeah, learning about electricity, how it circulates. We end up opening electronical devices. We had group discussions to talk about AI, of course, this question of is AI ever going to have uh, is on consciousness, uh, this question, of course, it came about. But all in all, what I felt is that um, most of the students are actually against this idea in the sense that technology is part of us and we are part of it. Uh, there is this powerful sentence from Laura Forlano that she says, if technology fails, we fail meaning that technology it's not something separated from us it's you know like this idea that ai is going to have its own conscience could also be seen as an excuse to actually to don't care you know but you know if we truly care it, then you know it, it will always be a responsible technology definitely there is this urgent need to to talk about it. So let's pretend, really difficult question, that we could fast forward 50 years. What role do you see artificial intelligence play in perhaps the creative industry and or the jewelry field? Even the other day I was reading about an article about AI and writing poetry. And there is already like poetry being written by AI. But there is also poetry being written by humans that looks like it was written by AI. So I think, obviously, it's going to influence us enormously. 
But I also think, especially people coming from craft and jewelry disciplines, there is 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 a need to actually find a mistake in things and learn to cope with it. So yeah, I, I honestly hope that we manage to yeah to create a discipline that actually embraces technological advances without being afraid of being threatened. But it actually you know that that it's a discipline that that celebrates diversity and we, and that means to you know to to talk about ancient technologies but also talk about current technologies i mean some years ago everyone was afraid about 3d printing or oh, we will never solder things again but we keep on doing that and i think the reason why we do that is because we are indeed fascinated about different process so I like to believe there is space for us to learn from different process and perhaps AI, the fact that it's such a spontaneous, you know, that, you know, that you can just type in and you can obtain a visual outcome, but maybe the fact that we have that, perhaps it will open even more windows for us to talk about process. And why for us it is important to make things with our own hands and what it means that. So it is, again, as long as there is a discipline and there is a care and there is a space to talk about it and acknowledge, then I think there is space uh, for all sort of technologies to exist. So as long we are aware of that and that all these different ways of doing are actually part of what it means to be human, because, you know, each technology actually sort of opens a different window to look at the world. So that should always be celebrated somehow in practice. That should be practice, I think. We mentioned already literature. You've recommended some books already. Are there any books or is there anything you think people should read, resources people should review, anyone with an interest in any of the topics that we've touched? Uh, well, I already mentioned so a geology of media uh by Jesse Perica uh yeah i think is a tremendous uh publication um another publication that i think and i haven't mentioned this one is atlas of ai politics and the planetary costs of artificial intelligence by kate crawford um yeah this in I think it was the publication that actually um, opened my eyes uh, to what's happening. Um, so I really, I really recommend, yeah, reading her. Um, I also mentioned Ways of Being from James Bridle, um, Beyond Human Intelligence. Um, yeah, I think this is also a perfect example to encourage people to find their own ways to deal with technology and to be aware of what it means intelligence and how intelligence is actually spread throughout our entire um, world yeah i think that's it a little bit those are actually the ones that i for me really is a, a must read that i really enjoy reading what are your plans for your research your work in the near future is there anything that you can share with listeners that they should keep an eye out for or that you you know, how can they stay up to date with your research and your work? Sure. Um, well, uh, there are two things that I would like to share. Um, so the first one is actually on the 2nd of November uh, at the Gritwell Academy. There will be an exhibition with uh, the outcomes from the different uh, fellow researchers. Um, so I invite everyone to come for the opening. In 2024, so the year, the next year, I'm actually also going to publish a little bit the ideas that I've been telling to you. Um, so they will be published in a joint publication uh, with the Sandberg uh, Institute and the Gitwell Academy. Uh, so that's coming uh, yeah, next year. And perhaps one thing that I would also like to say it's actually, I'm actually at the moment, I am together with Monica Gaspar and uh, Marta costa -Gais. We are actually curating um, second Biennale, uh, Jewelry Biennale in Lisbon. And the topic is actually dictatorship and democracy because we are actually celebrating um, 50 years uh, of democracy in Portugal. 
so we are celebrating the the revolution, the the twenty five of uh, April, and pretty much, of course, you know, I I'll tend to to bring also a little bit what we have been discussing, you know, like this uh, imposition and forceful relationship that we have with the non-human worlds. This is definitely something that I will work throughout the uh, Biennale, which, um, so I'm creating uh, the symposium and there will also be an exhibition um, at the Design Museum uh, of, of Lisbon, Mood uh, Museum. So yeah, I invite everyone to keep an eye on that. Uh, we will be very happy to welcome you in Lisbon. With the very real physical impact of cloud-based data and tools and the changing practices these tool palette extensions bring, it is important artists and designers are engaging in both the use and exploration of artificial intelligence, the digital realm and the debate around these tools' roles in society. This is not a simple task, and for her efforts in bringing these questions to our attention through a sensitive materials-based investigation, and for speaking to me today, I would greatly like to thank Patricia. It's been a pleasure to hear what you are working on, and we look forward to your research and work progressing. Thank you so much, Sophie. Next month, I'll be joined by another guest, so watch this space to find out who it is. But for now, this was Sophie Boons for the BAJ podcast episode titled The Physical Reality of the Virtual with Dr. Patricia Dominguez. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.